Okay. I'm going to be in 2 Peter 1. I'm going to turn in. Do the second half of this that we didn't cover last week. Um, I first came out to this area over Christmas break in 1993. It's a long time ago. And I've told parts of this story before, so some of you may know different parts of it. I was a student at Howard Payne at the time, uh, and some friends and I went down to the National Park and we had the South Rim. And that's where I encountered Jesus. Uh, I remember that night like it happened yesterday. I remember looking up at the sky and seeing more stars than I'd ever seen, uh, more than I'd ever imagined. I was in a place considered one of the darkest in the continental United States, and it was as if the sky was just full of light. I knew the Milky Way existed, but I saw it for the first time and it blew my mind. I also remember the first time I went up to the McDonald Observatory for a star party and I looked through the various telescopes that they have set up and uh, I saw Mars and Venus and Jupiter and Saturn and a whole bunch of like star clusters and other awe-inspiring stuff that they point their telescopes at. I'm still captivated by all of it. And when I walk outside at night, um, I often stand just gazing into the sky. If you drove by my house around 10 o'clock, you'd think I was just a moron or something. I'd just be like standing there. Um, but I, I feel overwhelmed by it all, but I also feel seen, if that makes sense. Uh, my favorite thing to see in the sky is the Orion constellation. Uh, where I grew up, you could really only sort of see it if the sky was really clear. Uh, down in Houston because there was a lot of light pollution and other stuff in the air and so we didn't always get a good look at the night sky down there. Uh, but if it was clear, I would spot the belt, the three stars that formed the belt. Uh, and then sort of up to the shoulders and down to the knees and the whole thing. Uh, it always made me smile. I don't know why, I just did. Uh, the only drawback to that being my favorite constellation and thing to see in the sky is that it can only be seen between November and February in our hemisphere. Uh, so the rest of the year, I was stuck with the Big Dipper. <laughs> uh, but out here, I, I couldn't even begin to wrap my mind around how much light there was in the night sky. Uh, I still look forward to seeing Orion every year, and, and I still sort of mark the first time I see it going into the fall, or winter, like whatever, I guess. Uh, it still puts a smile on my face. Uh, several years ago, I was driving back from Alpine one evening after a soccer practice or something, and it was dark, and I could just, over the top of Marathon, as we're coming down 90, I could see Orion right there. It was really cool. Um, the rest of the year, you know, I enjoy all the other stars and the planets and that kind of stuff. I even enjoy watching uh, the International Space Station. I took the kids out not too long ago when it passed. It passes over every so often. And so the last time it passed over, I took them out and we were looking, and it's just, it's amazing to see. And to think, that little dot of light that's moving across the sky, there's people there. <laughs> there's people on that thing, moving away. Uh, so that's always cool. Um, if I could, I would probably just stay up all night 
staring. Look, I got to put a uh, cot or something out there and just just do it. Uh, even worked a job once where I got to do that. It was fun. Uh, but because of our technological advances, we understand a great deal about the universe, right? About the moon and its relationship to the tides, about the sun and how our proximity to it is just right for us to exist on this planet. Uh, about how the size of Jupiter and Saturn and their gravitational pull sort of tend to shield us from a lot of asteroids that might come and cause problems. Uh, to be fair, the ancient world knew quite a bit about celestial matters without even going to space, without having any of the stuff that we have. Uh, they recognized the difference between planets and stars based on their movements. They were able to plot and track that. Uh, but they also associated the planets and stars with gods and kings. It's not that they thought that that star or that planet was that god or king. It was just a, a sort of a way of representing them. Like it, it, it was one of their things that they did with that. In fact, when someone came before a king in that time, if you were to come before the king's throne and you were to present yourself to them, uh, you would list off a series of titles recognizing the king's majesty and authority. And some of these might include the name of where the ruler was uh, originally from. Like, you know, Alexander, uh, or uh, I forget his name, Cyril of Alexandria is one of the rulers. But he has a title that goes from where he's from. That's, it serves as a last name of sorts. Um, and so that was one of the things. Uh, but it could also be like a title that was given to them or, or that they adopted, like uh, Cyrus the Great, uh, or Cyrus, depending on how you pronounce it, the Babylon, uh, the Assyrian king who freed the Jews. Um, most of the time, these titles were really elaborate. They would, they would go on and on, and there would be several of them strung together. Um, a, a, a king could be addressed as king of kings, and we've heard that one, right? Everybody's kind of familiar with that one, uh, or similar things. Uh, we see this in Daniel 2, 37 through 38, where Daniel presented King Nebuchadnezzar with an interpretation of his dream, if you kind of remember that story. And he said, you, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory and into whose hand he has given. Wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beast of the field and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. And that's part of the way he addressed King Nebuchadnezzar, right? So very sort of flowery type language and all that, but titles thrown in there to sort of magnify the greatness of that king. In Numbers 24-7, we see uh, there was a prophet named Balaam, if you ever know about him, he's the one who had the tongue and the donkey. Um, but he had gone to curse Israel, and then God sort of rearranged that for him, and he blessed Israel instead. And so um, when he was doing that, and the prophecy that he was given at that moment, he got a hint of Messiah. And this is not a prophet of Israel, so this is kind of an interesting story to go back and look at. But he gets a hint of Messiah to come, and he says this, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter 
shall rise out of Israel, and it shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. A star, a scepter, right? These are titles, these are ideas that are given to a king, to a ruler. Uh, in Daniel 2.45, we actually see an echo of this sort of phrasing. When he received a vision of a stone being cut from a mountain, but not by human hands, and then that stone destroys the, stat the statue that represents the other rulers, right? And so a stone, that idea of a stone, a cut stone from this mountain. And Isaiah picked up on that as well. In Isaiah 28, 16, he declared, Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, of a sure foundation, and whoever believes will not be put to shame. So this idea of a stone, that there's something sure, the sure foundation, this is titles that are given to rulers. And the writers of the New Testament seized on this kind of language, and they applied it to Jesus. Now, there are way too many instances of this to list right now, but we saw a good example actually in 1 Peter 2.6 where he quoted that passage from Isaiah. He brought that forward speaking of Jesus. So, okay, that's a lot of information, right? All that to set up for our text this morning. So let's dig in and see what Peter has to say in the meat of his second letter. So follow along with me. We're going to read in 2 Peter 1, verse 12 and following. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when we received honor and glory from God, when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. May God bless the reading of his word. Alright, so there's a lot here, right? As Peter continued his thought concerning the seven ideals that he had given in the previous verses, uh, he wanted to encourage these believers in them. And he pointed toward his impending death. He knew it was coming. Uh, he may not have known what day or how, or you know, but he was told. Jesus warned him ahead of time that that would be how he, he would be killed against his will. That, that would happen. 
and so he clearly wanted to make things as plain as possible for the believers he's writing to before that happened. And the Greek word that he used to express this is diegiro, uh, which means to wake fully from sleep. The wording here is to stir up, but it means to wake fully from sleep. In other words, kind of to shake someone until they wake up fully. And I've gone into the rooms of my children and I've sort of poked them and gently tightened them. Uh, what? What? It's like it's morning, it's time to get up. Uh, now roll over. But this isn't, this is more forceful, right? This is, a, okay, it is time to get up, you need to get out of bed, you need to get, like it's that sort of thing. That's what's going on here. That's the word that Peter used for what he wanted to, how he wanted to encourage these people. And Peter's goal was to remind them in such a way that they would be fully awake to the way they should live, that the way they should be engaging in the world. And it's an interesting metaphor to use these days because of the way that word woke sort of gets thrown around in the culture and political arena, and I'm not going to go into him that, so don't worry. But Peter definitely wanted these believers to be awake. That's the thing here. This kind of language in Scripture always makes me think of uh, Keith Green's song, and Rick, you'll enjoy this. Uh, it's the song Asleep in the Light. And toward the latter part of that song, Keith Green sings, The world is sleeping in the dark that the church just can't fight because it's asleep in the light. How can you be so dead when you've been so well fed? Jesus rose from the grave, and you, you can't even get out of bed. It's a powerful song, I'll be honest. It's, uh, it seems to me that Green really understood kind of what Peter was getting at. And this song is that's written in 1978, so it's been around for a while. Um, but the question that that song brings up in this text is, have things in the church gotten better since then? Have we woke up and realized and recognized and lived correctly? I'm not so sure we have. I think we're far too busy with culture wars and politics these days gen in general. We're more concerned with metaphor uh, I'm sorry, with whether people at the grocery store checkouts tell us Merry Christmas than if they know the love of Jesus. More worried about MAGA or Antifa than we are the kingdom of God. The church has lost its way and its prophetic voice. Instead of living by the ideals that Peter reminded these believers of, we have instead listened to two other Voices. Voices that pull our attention away from the simple, everyday way of life that Jesus taught his disciples. The way of life that they passed on to those they discipled, and, and so on and so on for the first several centuries of the church. Then, y'all know where I'm headed with this, right? Constantine shows up, and Constantine adopted Christianity, and then he gave the church power. And we've been in trouble ever since. For the first several centuries after Constantine, this showed up in the way the, uh, the church exercised power throughout Europe, mainly. Uh, then beginning in the 1500s, you know, the Reformation happened, and it sort of changed the landscape of things for a while, upsetting the whole power structure. But they really ended up following in the footsteps of their predecessors, oppressing those 
who believed differently than they did. In our time, the church in America has been lulled to sleep, I think, by its luxury and by its proximity to power. I watched a documentary this week called God Forbid, The Sex Scandal That Brought Down a Dynasty. And if you haven't seen it, I think it's on Netflix or Hulu. Uh, but it's the story of Jerry Falwell, Jerry Falwell Jr., the political power that they wielded as leaders of the moral majority and the Christian right, and then the way it sort of all fell apart. And as it unfolds, it reveals the way Falwell Sr. used his considerable reach and influence. He had a radio program and TV program, and he, he had influence that stretched well beyond his little church in Virginia. Uh, but he used those to support the election of Ronald Reagan. And then how that influence continued to play an important role in electing George Bush and George W. Bush. Uh, Falwell Jr. then picked up the mantle of his father using his position and influence at Liberty University, which is the university he founded, that Falwell Sr. founded. Uh, and he, Falwell Jr., used it to support Donald Trump. And I'm not saying who anyone should or shouldn't vote for. That's not the point of what I'm getting at here. But there's a level of power there influence that should startle us as Christians in the church. Still, it wasn't that specifically that brought Falwell Jr. down. It, that played into it, of course. Uh, but it was really the lifestyle of luxury that he and his wife engaged in with a pool boy that they met in Miami. Uh, perverted lifestyle that carried on in secret for years using their wealth and connections to keep it hidden until things went sideways and it was uncovered. I say all this to say, this is not the church that Jesus established. It's just not. A church at war with its neighbors and hungry for political power is not the church we see in the New Testament. It's not in the Gospels, it's not in Acts, it's not in any of the letters. It's important that we recognize this because God sent Jesus a certain way at a certain time on purpose. It wasn't random. It wasn't casual. He was born to a poor carpenter of an oppressed people group under the most powerful empire the world had ever known at that time. That wasn't random. If God meant for us to live like everyone else, to crave wealth and power and use them for our own passions or, or even to try and use them for good, the life of Jesus would have looked very different. He would have been born into wealth and power or he would have achieved it along the way somehow. He would have applauded Peter for taking up a sword and cutting off that guy's ear. He would have destroyed his enemies instead of forgiving them from the cross. When we try to engage with the world on its terms, we fail. Every time. Even if we're trying to do good. Because the way of the world, it's corrupt. And it corrupts those who engage with it. Jesus showed us this and he showed us a different way. That's the whole point. A way that many Christians seem to have forgotten. Peter summarized the way of Jesus in those seven terms. He 
we sort of packed them all into those seven terms uh, that we looked at. And then he answered what seems to have been an accusation in verses 16 through 18. He claimed the disciples were not following cleverly devised myths. And we don't have to describe his eyewitness testimony of being present at the transfiguration of Jesus when Moses and Elijah appeared alongside him in shining majesty and glory. We find a version of that story in Luke 9, 28-36, and I'm not going to read it all, but I do want to point out a very particular word in verse 31. Most Bibles probably use the word departure there. Uh, the KJV even uses the word decease. They're talking about Jesus speaking to Moses and Elijah about what he's about to do. About he's about to depart. He's about to decease and leave the world. And it's true that Jesus was just about to head to Jerusalem for the last time. We see in that text and beyond that right after that he sort of turns his face to Jerusalem and is headed toward the cross, right? But many translators and commentaries have taken this translation, this word, to mean that he was just referring to his death. But the word he used makes me think otherwise. Now, I'm not, you know, smarter than all the commentators and, and folks. That's not what I'm trying to say. But it's just an interesting word choice. If, you, if you're a linguist and if you love words, which is why I do, that's why I was bringing stuff up. It's an interesting word choice. Luke used the word exodon. Does that sound familiar? It's a form of the word exodus. And it's an incredibly unusual word to use for death. See, the Greeks, as they always do, they had multiple words for death. Thanatos, nekros, keros, morao, all these words meaning different aspects of dead or death or those kinds of things. The exodus really wasn't one of them. And it's incredibly uncommon to use the word exodus unless something more is meant. And given the connotation the word has in the Old Testament, as well as the fact that Moses himself was present and took part in that discussion, it seems far more likely that Luke used the word exodus to make a connection between what Moses had done for Israel and what Jesus was doing for the world. Add to this the fact that in Luke 9.32 we read that Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory. I guess it's possible that this is just a happy coincidence, but I don't think it is. Because Peter was referencing it here for a specific reason. Not only was he refuting the accusation that he and the other disciples were following myths, but he was also encouraging these believers to trust in what they had been taught. Peter was relating the power of experiencing Jesus in a moment when Jesus was revealed in all his glory. It was a moment many Christians are in awe of, but probably don't fully understand. See, this was a royal moment. Jesus was an itinerant preacher who traveled all over Galilee and Judea on foot. Even if he washed his clothes, right, they would have had a 
dull hue of dirt. Anyone who works outside for any length of time knows that you can't wash it all out. Sooner or later, white becomes brownish, right? That's how it works. His clothes would have never been bright or shiny. And this was common for the common people, for the oppressed people, for the slaves, any group that wasn't nobility or empowered by nobility. See, nobility and those they empowered, those, they were the only ones, the only people who would have had multiple sets of clothing and been able to wear anything pure white and shiny as if it were new and never seen a day in the dirt. That Jesus appeared on top of a mountain, which is where the gods were worshipped, was joined by two witnesses, which was a Jewish way of establishing the veracity, the truth of a matter. These weren't just casual witnesses either. They were the two great prophets of Israel, Moses and Elijah, that he appeared bright and shining in clothing that was dazzling white, as it's described in Luke. All of this points to who he really is. Even Peter and the others missed it at the time. Peter wanted to set up tents so that they could all just hang out there for a while. Which, I mean, that's something, but it's still not grasping the full weight of that moment. See, that was a royal moment. The one true God and King was going to bring about the exodus of his people by defeating their great enemy, sin by taking it all on his shoulders as he bore the cross and then by resurrecting and walking out of the grave on Sunday morning, having overcome the enemy once and for all. Forty days later, the disciples watched as he ascended his throne and then ten days after that, when Pentecost and the celebration of first fruits came, the disciples received the gift of the Holy Spirit as king. Jesus fulfilled his promises and empowered his people to live as he had instructed them to live in his kingdom by giving us the Holy Spirit. We know all of this. We've heard it a number of times. But are we living our lives this way? Are we fully awake to the glory of our King? If not, Peter's words should stir us up. They should shake us out of our slumber. We were never meant to take over the world by using wealth and power and the ways of the world. That was never the goal. We were meant to live with virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, Godliness, brotherly affection, and love. We were meant to live this way, not only because that's what Jesus taught, but because that's how people will see the difference between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter wasn't done explaining his experience. He had a few more things to say. And he included the fact that the Father's voice spoke from on high, saying the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. 
And the words were, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. And this is an, a sort of a passing on of the mantle in a sense. It was a, a stamp of approval from the king to the prince, in a sense, the king to come. And yet Peter continued to make his point about all this by claiming that they all shared the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Now this doesn't mean he was downplaying what he had experienced on the mountain when Jesus had that royal moment. It means everything, everything that the prophets had testified about in the Old Testament had led to this moment and had been confirmed by what happened there and in the days that followed. And as always, Peter pointed back to the Old Testament as a way of understanding the full scope of who Jesus was, what he had done, and what his kingdom was all about moving forward. He referred to it as a lamp shining in a dark place, and then pointed forward, saying it would keep them on the right track until the day dawns and the morning star rises in their hearts. Now that's more royal language, right? He's not talking about stars, not really. The dawning of the day is meant to refer to the return of Jesus and at the same time the full revelation of his glory, like when night begins, the, the sun begins to dawn on the night and darkness begins to turn to light and gradually as the sun rises and the day dawns, you can see the things that you couldn't see. Peter, James, and John experienced on the mountain. Because they were the only three who were up there when it happened. But what they experienced on that mountain, the entire world will experience when Jesus returns. Amen. At that moment, every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And Peter also referred to the morning star rising in our hearts. And there's quite a bit that we can discuss here in terms of how this term had been used in the ancient world and even in the Old Testament. If y'all want to talk about the morning star after the service, we have to do it. Um, for instance, in Isaiah 14, 12, the prophet taunted Babylon's king, saying, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn. How you are cut down to the ground you laid low the nations. The short version is that this is a title of royalty. The morning star was actually identified with the planet Venus. Uh, it continues to shine. If you've ever been up sort of at that part of dawn that's happening, it continues to shine sort of brightly, even as the sun rises and, and all the other stars sort of start to fade. The, the, day star, the morning star, Venus, is still shining. You still see it. For this reason, ancient kings bore the title of morning star, among other titles. That was one of the ones that got given to them. And Peter was using it here to make his point about Jesus being the true morning star, the true light, the light that shines when all others fade. The Greek word that he used there is phosphorus, some of y'all are probably familiar with that idea, phosphorus. Uh, it's translated as morning star, light bringer, 
light barrier, uh, bearer or radiant. Peter was using it in the same way that that idea is used in Isaiah 14, 12. And the Hebrew word there is actually a phrase, and it's Halel ben Sahar, which means shining one, son of the dawn, or shortened morning star. This is all that royal language happening over and over. And the title, it's about majesty and honor. It's about glory and power. And we have to understand that these titles were offered to a king because that king held life and death in his hands. Jesus is the one true king who defeated death and holds life in his hands for anyone who will come to him. And Peter purposefully connected the seven ideals with the majesty and glory of Jesus as king. Now, I've said it before, but many Americans with a vote and a voice in our operation, uh, in the operation of our country, we don't really understand the idea of a king. We don't want to grasp it. Because our lives aren't that way. If we did, if we really grasped the concept that Peter was relating here, the church would look very different than it does. Each of us would have a much healthier respect for the presence of God. The church itself would be more careful about how it engages in our culture and politics, about how it carries on the task of evangelizing and discipling others, about what it means to claim we follow Jesus, what our daily lives should look like, how we should interact with the people of this town. To finalize this point here, Peter clarified the role of prophecy again, bringing into focus the fact that real prophecy is not a matter of personal interpretation or will, but a product of the Holy Spirit. And this will be extremely important moving forward into next week as uh, Peter would next address false prophets and teachers and the way that they treat Jesus like a casual thing they can use to get what they want. I think we start to look at it, we'll see a bunch of those in our culture. But that's not who we are. It's not who we have been called to be. We have been called by Jesus to be messengers of his kingdom to all the world. And our congregation has been called to do that right here in Marathon. And over in Solas as well. <laughs> And if we will live as Peter suggested, the way Jesus taught his disciples to live, then we will fulfill our calling in this place. And I really believe people's lives will be changed. Will you pray with me?